0: came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who
1: killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom
0: itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward, and freedom will be defended. There are many ways to break down barriers, stereotypes, and preconceived views based on someone's appearance. Victor Elisa found his solution through his love of sport. He is, by his own admissions, a passionate player and follower of football and the Metropolitan Police's football team. He found that by playing sport, it allowed him to develop relationships with his colleagues who would no longer look at him as Victor, the black police officer, but Victor, the incredibly talented footballer. Victor's story in policing is one that should inspire us all to challenge ourselves and our thinking, the way we interact with each other, support each other, and lead by example. It's been an honour to continue my chat with retired Chief Superintendent Victor Elisa during this episode of Protect and Serve. I want to um, take a bit of a skip now, if I may, just fast-forwarding, and your promotion... um and your transfer to the Metropolitan Police Service in 2006, where you were posted to Southwark as a superintendent. And you worked in three important roles here in operations, response and neighbourhood. The transition from the City of London Police to the Met, a- a- again, another move, staying centrally in London, but obviously coming out of the Square Mile. What was the transition from the City of London Police to the Met? Um, what, what, was the, what was the driving factor behind that move?
1: Um Again, I had enjoyed the city. I worked in the fraud squad for um, for three, four years. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be a part of working in the, in, in, in a team that helped develop all the technological um, um, uh, equipment that was put in place to deal with the um, uh, terrorism uh, that was going on in the city. Um, I worked as a, a deputy. Divisional commander in the city, so I had a a, a really good experience and uh, good professional experience in the city. I, and again, I guess similar to Surrey, I, I felt that um, it was probably time to actually take on a you know a, a different a different challenge. Um, and the Met was very very different from the city. You know, the Met is very different from anywhere else. Um, and prior to uh, getting through a promotion board uh, to get to move to the Met as um, superintendent i'd worked in the home office for three years um, as part of a small team looking at um, race in the criminal justice system and i was leading on stop and search in that small team um, and i thoroughly enjoyed working at that policy level and um, working to uh, to ministers and working to you know uh, senior officers around uh, forces in the country and also working with them um, uh, with specialist officers junior officers working in training and delivering um some of the training some of the learning around stop and search and that was um that was that was really um developmental encouraging and i and i felt then that you know i would like to uh, have a different challenge um and the met were fortunately advertising for um superintendents and they and they were taking candidates from outside the Metropolitan Police. So I, I applied for that. I was successful. Uh, got into the Met, and my first posting was Southwark. And the transition is like chalk and cheese. Absolutely massive. Um, and you know, the, 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 I I'll give you an example. And I think um, um, one of the one of the areas that I worked with, I was in, I was in Peckham, um, and and you know Southwark had a number of different stations, Camberwell, Peckham, Borough High Street. And, uh, and and one of the decisions we made, it would be useful to have parts of the senior leadership team based in different um, stations. So there was that accessibility and visibility. And I was, um, I was based in Peckham as a superintendent. Um, and one weekend, we had a real traumatic weekend when uh, four people were killed. Um, started off on a Friday night with... Um, Four young men who'd um, robbed a security van ended up in an argument, and one of them stabbed the other, and he got killed. Um, There was another stabbing that was on a Friday night. There was another stabbing on a Saturday, Um, and then there was a a fatal drug overdose on a Sunday. And the thing that topped it off on a Monday, uh, and we, you know, you get informed. When there was a as a critical incident a killing a murder and as a you know senior officer at the time if you're on call you made a decision as to you know whether you held the gold group and everything else and the resources were in place uh, and you supported the um uh murder investigation team you know with maintaining the scene and you spoke with communities you did a community impact assessment you got independent advisory group in terms of you know how they worked with you worked with the community getting information to the community getting Um, appeals out for witnesses you know and and, um, encouraging uh, those people who could be witnesses giving them reassurances that um, you know you wanted them to be witnesses to give information so the investigation could continue and so this was going on throughout the weekend and then we came in on a Monday as you would do big overview review the senior team you know where are we what resources do we need um how's the investigation going? What's the community impact assessment? And as you can imagine, it was really tense. And then on the Monday, I remember getting a call late in the um in the evening that there'd been another murder. And what had happened was um the the um the young man who'd stabbed one of his mates on the Friday, the guy who would died, his friends had decided to take out revenge, so had gone to the house of of the uh, of the young man, <coughs> and um, gone to the bedroom, which this which he shared with his fifteen-year-old brother, and they've just sprayed the bedroom with um, automatic. Oh weapon. my God! And his fifteen-year-old brother was in bed, and he was killed. Jesus, that's awful. And it was just, it was awful, absolutely awful. And um, and for me, it's it the it's the first real moment of community anger. Mm. Um, not anger at the police, but anger at the way that the situation, the level of control had just deteriorated, Um, and we had a meeting the next morning and, you know, members of the community just saying, you know, we're going to take charge of this, we're going to do something, we need to get together and have a conversation about how do we get some control of this level of just indiscriminate violence. I remember there was a community meeting. I mean, at the time, I think I was in charge of uh, response team, as superintendent, my colleague who was in charge of um, neighbourhood policing, um, David Chinchin, um, and, you know, together summoned the help of, of all of us and we, you know, facilitated the community coming together and there was a massive community meeting um, in one of the schools on the border of um, Southwark and Lambeth. And, and there were so many people there, there were people, you know, outside... Um, And that showed to me, at best, you know, the police are facilitators in trying to control some of the tensions, work with and deal with and solve some of the tensions in community, at best. At worst, we can kid ourselves that we have control. Um, and, And I learned that the best way was to work with communities in terms of getting information, getting energy, getting resources, and actually making sure that we do our bit as um, as an organization, as the professionals, you know, our investigations are really tight, our protection are really tight and clear, our communication is really, you know, tight and clear. Our support of witnesses, yeah. So we do all those professional things. Um, but to think that we could be in the right place at the right time to prevent any of these incidents um you know i think we're kidding ourselves the best we could do is actually make sure that you know we create those environments where people tell us about things tell us you know if we're lucky enough that they can actually tell us so we can prevent absolutely brilliant um but more often than not we rely on them to tell us and give us information post you know an incident happening and we're just really dependent on them giving us information accurate information as quickly as possible so we can do our professional bit try and resolve the situation whether we investigate whether we arrest and it just struck me that they are so so significantly important and our role is actually build that trust where we can get their support and their help um, and their input when we needed it and and at the rate that we needed it Uh, and that was a massive lesson and and there's Um,
0: there's huge challenges there in in getting the balance right in terms of Supporting the community, which fundamentally I think is the highest level of priority, demonstrating that you are there, that you are supporting, that you are doing everything you can to reduce, minimize, detect, um, and prevent these incredibly horrific incidents from occurring. But equally, then, when you increase the level of policing in a particular area because there is a problem, you then have the challenge of appeasing the concerns of the community. That, for instance, a particular tactic of policing is to um, implement legislation so that you can increase the powers that bestow, bestowed upon police officers in, in, with regards to stop and search and then making sure that you identify maybe the right individuals that need to be spoken to and making sure that it doesn't come across as being heavy-handed and targeting particular elements of the community. Is it, do you have to try and get sort of buy-in from the community that you're going to have to do a few things here to show people that the police are here and that we're going to try and regain some level of control get some sort of visibility out there so people understand that this sort of behavior won't be tolerated how do you find that important balance
1: um i i i find it um, unquestionably important um it's unquestionably necessary <clears throat> and it's um, um I and mean, in my experience has been absolutely invaluable so, so so i'll give you an example so at the time um as part of my time in Southwark I led the um, stop and search work in Southwark and, um, and and Southwark had its challenges and it's still got its challenges today and it's one of the busiest boroughs in London it always has been and I guess it always will be um, for violence for, for um, crime for um, uh, assaults in public places for which you use stop and search um, and that conversation with the um, community is also important so Part of the structure that we had in Stop and Search and, and police uh, boroughs still have in, in London at the moment, and I presume police forces in around the country still have, is independent advisory groups. And part of the operational work that we did on Stop and Search was to use the Territorial Support Group, uh, who are a specialist unit dealing with... Um, high-risk, critical incident, public order incidents you know, um, major events. So these officers are highly trained, highly skilled, but they're not part of a borough. And the the level of violence, I was saying, was increasing in, in, in Southwark, and we firmly believe that using stop and search was one of the methods that we could use to reduce weapon carrying, uh, assaults, violence, robbery, and probably gang activity activity. Um, in, in in the borough, and one of the operations that we set up was to use the metal detector arches, um, but to use those at strategic points along the borough, so at the entrances or exits to tube stations. And what we did with that, and and this was so getting, the uh, territorial support group to work with Southwark, um, you know, and 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 again, and for the community, this is bringing in, specialist officers who were not in the borough, and that always created concern. So the planning was, was to plan what we were going to do, get the independent advisory group and inform them and plan with them, and get them to come out and work with us. So the type of things that we did, so i, I give give one example of an operation. So we set up the um, uh, metal detectors in an arch. At the time you had the elephant and castle, and you had uh, the tube station and a overground station coming out of there. And we had the uh, metal detector arches, um, local officers working with the uh, Territorial Support Group officers, actually forming, waiting outside uh, at one end of the um, the metal arch detectors. People came out. And then we had the independent advisory group members doing two things, really. Doing three things, really. One, explaining to people, uh, passengers that came out, that this is a police operation in place. They were observers and they got... Um, a metal arch detector, which they were asking people to go through. If you didn't want to go through, then officers would want to actually just search anyway for weapons um, with your cooperation. If you did go through, then the officers at the other end, if it set off the uh, metal detector, they would search you. If you didn't set off the metal detector, you could go on if they didn't think there was anything else on you. That was one thing. The other thing was, on the other side, there were of uh, the metal detector, the arch, there were community members who had leaflets, who were given leaflets to people who came through saying, these are your rights, these are the things you should have got, these are the things the officer should have said to you, and these are the things you can get afterwards, you know, information. So document it and keep hold of those. And then the third thing they were doing was that there were office, there were members of the community who were actually then saying, I was running a survey how did you How did you think? What was your experience? You know if you want to give us feedback, give us feedback. Now you can imagine the level of trust that's required to do that. Not only have you got um, members of the public assessing, monitoring what officers were doing, but also working with them. You had officers. Who actually were carrying out a really sensitive and tricky operation because people were coming out from having been at work, going out in the evening. The last thing they wanted was to go through a metal arch. They wanted to get along their way. They understood that there was violence on the streets, but most of them say well, it's got nothing to do with me. Yeah, why don't you do this somewhere else? So, gaining that level of understanding and acceptance was really important. And, you know, using stop and search, which is always had a real challenging um, um, explanation reputation in a challenging borough under challenging circumstances um, was difficult in itself. But we carried out a number of those operations around Southwark. And, in my view, they were effective um, in detecting, but they were also effective in building reassurance, building understanding, and I think in building trust in, in not only the... Members of the independent advisory group and other members who came and worked alongside us on those operations, but I think in the wider community, because there was a sense that they understood what we were doing, it was explained to them, uh, and there was a rationale for doing it. Now, could you do that operation every time? Of course, you couldn't, but you could do that in specific situations. But the communication, the explanation, the dialogue, the collaborative working was really important then, and I think all those elements in actually policing today are still important
0: i want to talk about um probably what is one of the greatest challenges in your policing career you have to correct me if i'm wrong with that statement but i i feel it possibly is in, in 2011 uh london and a- across the country um there were significant levels of public disorder to levels I don't think we'd seen for an awfully long time, post sort of Brixton riots, um, the, the farm riots, um, which led to the, the tragic death of, of Keith Blakelock. But 2011 was as a result of a fatal police shooting uh, where a, a young black man, Mark Duggan, um, was fatally shot by police, which is a, a tragic incident not only for his family... And for everybody concerned, it's not what anybody wants to see or be witness to.
1: The jury looking into the death of Mark Duggan have been told they must decide whether it was absolutely necessary for armed police to fire the fatal shot. The officer concerned said he fired in self-defence. Well, the partner of the man whose death triggered the weekend's riots has told Channel 4 News that the protests against his death have got out of control. Simone Wilson is still in shock, still struggling to pick up the pieces, still trying to get answers. Mark Duggan was her partner and was the man police shot dead in Tottenham last Thursday night. The demonstration that followed wanted answers. The riots that followed wanted something else.
0: But the ramifications of that incident led to significant public disorder. What was it like as a senior officer in the Metropolitan Police in 2011 with the fallout from that incident? It must have been an incredibly challenging time.
1: It was, it was at... Um I remember in 2011 I was working. I was leading the stop and search team for the Met, and I was based in the, um, in the in the police building in West London, um, Empress State Building. Uh, and I remember, so I wasn't I wasn't um, uh, operational in a sense I'd, I wasn't attached to any boroughs or operational unit. And I remember sitting there as a superintendent watching this and thinking, I I want to be out on the street to actually be able to to contribute, you know, to the policing, into the um, 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 policing that was going on. But I, I I, just did not have any unit to be part of. And I just, I, I remember sitting there really, on some of the images, just really mortified as to what was happening in London, you know. Um, and, and equally, you know, um, with the shooting of Mark, and I, I remember some of the messages, some of the first messages that came through to the police, uh, things like you know, um, it'd been reported that he'd been executed. Uh, he was pinned to the ground and shot by a police officer. Um, it'd been reported that he'd shot a police officer and the police had, had, had uh, shot back in self-defense. So all these misinformation came out and it created an environment and it created a situation when it felt as though the police had, had unjustifiably shot someone, and then the, the riots broke and, and I couldn't like I said individual as an individual couldn't do anything but um, a few months later I was promoted to Chief Superintendent posted to Bexley um, worked in Bexley um, for 10 months um, and then I got posted to Haringey and I remember getting the call from the Assistant Commissioner that um, um, you know I was going to be posted from Bexley uh, I remember going to see him in his office and um we were, you know, thinking of posting you to Haringey. And my initial thought, my initial professional thought was, yes, you know, brilliant, I'm getting a bigger borough. And I guess, you know, um, any police officer, you want, wherever you work, you want to face, you know, the greatest challenge and you want to work at, you know, the the peak challenge that you could get. And I thought, great stuff, you know, Um, I'm working in a bigger borough. No disrespect to Bexley, loved Bexley, had different challenges. Um, but, you know, I was going to be given the opportunity to have a different challenge. Um, and then obviously realised Haringey, Tottenham, Riots. Um, and, and it really just raised the stakes in terms of the challenges. Um, so professionally, I was excited, exhilarated. Also professionally, I was hugely nervous um, because... You know, it's not just an individual thing. I was going over there as the borough commander to represent, to be part of, you know, the Metropolitan Police Service, but to also be the figurehead in actually delivering policing, which, you know, was part and parcel of the package. You know, policing doesn't go away. Being the leader in there, dealing with all the performance measures that all my colleagues as borough commanders were dealing with at the time, you know, it was at the time when we had regular performance meeting monthly performance meetings um, and daily you could have daily performance meetings if your detection offending rate was actually higher than others so if your robbery rate was higher than you know uh, one of the highest ones in in London of all the boroughs if your detection rates for example in Burberry was lower than some of the other boroughs in in uh, London I had to face you know the challenges of how I was going to actually remedy rectify that. In addition to the inquest that was uh, about to start into the um, into the shooting of Mark, um, so it was it was it was it was nervous. It was a nervous time. It was a challenging time, um, but it was I just saw it as a great opportunity to be able to. Use all the things that I've learned over the years in terms of leadership, in terms of teamwork, in terms of collaboration, in terms of working with the community to continue to deliver policing at a high standard. But to also do two fundamental things. Reassure my officers that they could deliver policing services to every section of the community. Um, and, and I learned this when I got there and there weren't any sections of the community that automatically or inherently disliked the police and I'll give an example of that if if, if time permits Yeah. so I had to do that reassurance um, so we had to deliver policing services to all but then also I had to reassure the community that the police is there for every single one of them regardless of Age, ethnicity, social status—we were there for all of them. And you know, as you mentioned in your introduction, there there was a legacy in um, in Tottenham. Um, you know, with the death of uh, Cynthia Jarrett in um, Broadwater Farm, the murderer, the death of Keith Blakelock in the disturbances. There was a real legacy and a real tension and divide between sections of the community and the police from both sides, and and that was. Um, a real issue that needed to be addressed if we were going to actually be able to deliver policing to all sections of the community and gain a level of um I won't say trust but a level of acceptance yeah um from from the public. Uh, and I, I think we needed to go a long way to gain trust. And we needed to go even further to gain any confidence. But I was determined that we had a level of Acceptance, um, probably even tolerance, from the public, so we could deliver policing services. So it's a great opportunity, a great challenge, but hugely, hugely um, personally worrying um, because I wasn't quite sure um, how it was going to turn out. You know, uh, how the inquest was going to turn out. Um, but I was quite confident of how I was going to lead officers and lead policing. But the the inquest was. Um, was a different um, unknown altogether.
0: For, for our listeners that are outside of London um, and and outside of the, the United Kingdom, can can you just describe the sort of dynamics of Harringay Haringey and Tottenham and uh, what that looks like in terms of? Obviously, there was a, a big difference, as you say, coming from Bexley into Haringey. What are the what are the biggest differences for those that aren't aware of those two areas, those two boroughs?
1: I, I think the biggest difference, I mean, there's um, social inequality in, in Bexley, um, as there is in any borough in uh, in, in London. Uh, but I think the biggest difference was the the size of the communities of, of the social difference, the social inequalities in Haringey um, and the... The level of, um, of um, crime um, is also significantly different. So you had your robberies in, uh, in Bexley, you had your assaults, you had your burglaries, but in Haringey it was multiplied several times. Um, the severity of, of the violence uh, was also greater and, and, the, and the severity of the social divide was also hugely greater and and I you know and uh, and and this is a rough estimate, but the the difference in mortality um, between one end of Haringey and another was eight years. you know so if you look at a you know a, a six mile difference, you know you had a eight year difference in mortality rate so someone in one part of the borough was likely to die eight years younger <clears throat> than someone in a different part of borough, just because of different social status. Uh, different levels of um, uh, standard of living so that was hugely different Um, and then when you add on top of that the legacy that I think there's probably only existed maybe two maybe three places in London the legacy that makes any police any challenging police community encounter extra difficult and I think Tottenham is one of those places and brixton is one of those places um in london so incidents that in other areas would be really challenging and difficult could lead to you know a a more severe public outcome in places like haringey uh, in places like tottenham and and um and brixton never worked in brixton but you know being in tottenham those were those were the challenges so when mark was Mark was shot uh, by the police in Tottenham. Um, I think all those legacies contributed to turning that into uh, the public disorder that it was. Um, And and I'll give you an an example. So in my time, what I'm trying to say, in my time in Haringey, um, after the inquest, and not long after the inquest, another young man was shot in in Haringey, Um, and he was shot at um, Wood Green. Um, by the police in a police operation and that was reported in media as a young man was shot in North London And, and then when they gave the detail afterwards it was shot in Wood Green. Now I both professionally and personally feared that if any one of the public media had said the young man was shot near Tottenham I think the public reaction would have been different. And that's the level of the impact that legacy has in terms of uh, public response to policing of uh, uh, to policing of critical incidents or police involvement in critical incidents yeah. uh, in 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 London.
0: So uh, this and this is where I suppose my opening piece in terms of where I sort of watched your incredible leadership, which was inspiring, really for a for a junior ranked officer at the rank of sergeant as I was. To watch you manage and oversee such an important time in that borough's um, history in terms of the findings which came out as as to Mark Duggan's death being uh, a lawful police shooting, incredibly tragic. You still have families to support, communities to reassure. Um, but ultimately a finding is handed down and obviously Sir Bernard Hogan Howe, Lord Hogan Howe was the commissioner at the time, I think it was Assistant Commissioner Martin Hewitt who was leading um, the Met's response into terms of that finding and I remember vividly watching you sitting in a room on the documentary, The Met Policing London, this finding coming down and the concern that you had with how it had been delivered in terms of it being a lawful police shooting and what that meant for the community. And then when Mark's family came out and delivered a statement which um, was one with a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, a lot of upset and I think all natural emotions that one would expect to see but equally emotions that really worried you as to kind of what that response would mean for the communities of Tottenham because there was a comment made to this is now time to re-engage in sort of against the police and, and that's not what you wanted to happen, that's not where we wanted the communities to go. How was that period for you when that decision came out? Sitting inside that police station as the borough commander, trying to make the right decisions with a colleague next to you, as to what could happen next, because it must have been very, very hard to plan for.
1: It, 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 it was. Um, I, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. We would plan for, um, <clears throat> we plan. Excuse me. We plan for in different situations, um, but we were always, we were always. And I think I'm fair in saying this. I think professionally we were hopeful of a um of a uh, um a lawful shooting, but we weren't expecting it. Uh, and, and I'll tell you that the, the level of um of community um um anger. So during the, the inquest, I mean I, I had regular meetings with a with a number of people in private. Um and I, and I had their regular meetings, weekly meetings with their, um, um, one of the people in, in North London, Haringey, who's a real activist and, and challenging to police. And one of the conversations we had was that um, he was saying to me that the judge should not give the jury the option of lawful killing, because there's no way the evidence will point to a lawful killing of Mark Duggan. So it should have been only a um, neutral verdict or a non-lawful killing. And the conversation was, you know, the judge has got to leave open every option available to the jury. But his view was the public did not think that there would ever, ever be a situation where there would be a verdict of lawful killing. One. Other thing was it taking the family, um, not necessarily the mother, but the aunt, lots of convincing to pursue the legal route, to go down the legal route, to try and get, as they describe it, justice for Mark Duggan. That took a lot of convincing. So when when they'd gone through the the legal route, you got to the um, you got to the uh, uh, the jury verdict, and the jury came out with a verdict of lawful killing. My immediate response, both personally and professionally, was, I think there's going to be a riot. One, you had activists who were saying the Jews should never have been given that option. Two, the family had been persuaded, convinced to go down the legal route. Both have been disappointed. That Both have received a result that they never expected. We as an organisation hoped we would get a result that we believed was fair. Uh, But even as you could see in the in television program even the verdict of a lawful killing came as a surprise to some senior officers so my immediate thought was all the preparation that we made to deal with a public order situation to deal with another public disturbance we were going to have to implement and part of that part of that arrangement was Because one of the reasons that led to the right was, you know, the family of Mark came to the police station, wanted to meet a senior officer, and the senior officer wasn't there. And that was interpreted as being disrespectful. Through the different meetings, um, one of the things that we agreed was that I, and I agreed to this as well in the end of the discussion, I, as the most senior officer on the borough, would always be available for any occasion where there was a potential that any member of the family would want to come and meet the senior officers. So there were a number of days I slept at the police station just to be there. And part of the agreement was as well, we knew the family were going to come back, whatever the verdict was, it was going to come back to Haringey, uh, come back to Tottenham. We knew they would come outside police, Tottenham Police Station, and we knew there were going to be a crowd with them. So we'd planned for that, but we planned for a neutral verdict, which was a high-risk situation we had to deal with. Um, even an unlawful killing may have given some uh, people in the community the justification to start another public disturbance. So we planned for that. We had all the all the planning, all the officers, all the equipment in place to be able to deal with that. Um, it would have been a a really difficult uh, policing operation, um, but we planned to do, to do that. So when the verdict came in of unlawful killing my initial thought was we'd have to use all the resources for the most extreme situation um excuse me we have to use all the resources for the most extreme situation um so professionally i was i was worried um and i couldn't see a way that the family could be convinced or the people who support the family could be convinced to be peaceful um, when they got back to Haringey. And what made it even worse was that I'd, I'd got the um, members of the community in as advisors and how we were going to respond when the verdict came in on a particular day. What did I need to do that may, needed to be different from what we planned for? So when you saw the film, you saw them sitting around the table, they were all you know, advisors and actually just saying, knowing full well all the things that had gone on before the day of the verdicts, what did I need to do to tweak to actually maintain any form of uh any form of order and and, and, and tranquility. Um and one of the things we agreed was that whatever happened, I would be available. And that availability meant if necessary, I would go down and be outside the police station. Um for any member of the family if they wanted to speak, wanted to do anything. Um, So when that verdict came out and I watched it on the television and I thought, and I watched the footage, the news footage of the assistant commissioner addressing the crowd um, and I looked at that and I thought we've probably got an hour before um, the family and their supporters got to Haringey, probably got an hour to be able to get my thoughts together, speak to the community, actually be outside and just faced whatever was going to happen in the full knowledge that we needed to bring in the public order the unit, they were ready to go. But they turned up within 20 minutes. Um, and, you know, you had to, I had to go with a plan. And the plan, you know, was, as a leader, to be available for the family if they wanted to speak and everything else. Um, and, you know, as the film showed, the anger was far, far greater than I had anticipated and probably... The organisation had anticipated, and it and it was unpredictable, more unpredictable than I thought it would have been, uh, had there been a, a different verdict. Um, so it was a really tense, tough, challenging time, you know, both professionally and personally. The,
0: the anger that was shown towards Mark Rowley, who delivered, um, obviously, a, a piece outside the R C J on behalf of the Metropolitan Police, was, was must have been quite. Um, concerning to watch because he, he was barely able to deliver um, the the piece that had been put together over the top of heckling, shouting, people getting very close in his face.
1: I'm going to make a short statement. No officer, that's out at the start of the day to run an operation that results in some endowment
0: was that for you the start of a recipe for what could have been potentially a bit of a disaster brewing
1: oh yes yeah yeah no, absolutely I, I just thought that um, um, people didn't want to listen they didn't want to listen and, and you could you know you could rationalise why would they? Um, they thought that you know the the, the institution of of, of, the, of the country were gonna you know were gonna give them a verdict that they believed was the right verdict, and they didn't get it, and so they were probably thinking, well, here's all the different institution, policing, um, courts, all combining together and working together against you know um, ordinary members of the public. Um, so yeah, and and. I just felt, yeah, the, the anger, there, there was the anger there, but I, I felt there would have been, there would have still been thoughtful out of actually not doing anything physical. Uh, the, the, the reality was <clears throat> the anger was was going to be back in Haringey. The anger wasn't going to be, the anger was at the police institution, uh, that's the Met. The anger is at the senior officer who's reading out a statement, but I felt the real anger was going to be back in Back in Tottenham, uh, and 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 I and I felt that that's where they were gonna f- they're gonna feel comfortable and free to actually express that anger in a physical way. Um, so I, I I generally expected that it was going to come back and it was there was going to be another riot. Um, and um, and and I also for, for the probably the the on probably the second time in my career, you know, I, I did fear for you know my personal safety and and it's only after watching the film um that was made by the BBC and there was a point in the crowd as I was walking through and you could just hear in the background someone saying not now not now put it away and it's only after I watched that because I thought wow you know um and, that, and I that was the level of the anger that I yeah, I, I, I knew they were angry but i just didn't think they would be that, you know, uh, that angry that they would harm a police officer with everybody around. Um, And, you know, and and there was another bit in the film where I spoke to my chief inspector because some of the officers were getting... uh, were being goaded, were being goaded to react, to respond. And that would have given, you know, some of the young men there the excuse to start something. And and I remember saying to my chief inspector, just, you know... um, let the officers take the abuse. Um, don't don't respond. Don't react. Uh, and that's a difficult thing to do, you know. And I go back when you talk about the legacy, <clears throat> the the response of certain sections of the community to police officers. You know, some of those police officers will, you know, imagine um, what m- would have gone on when Keith was murdered on the farm. Uh, you know, those are real, genuine emotions that people will probably want to avenge, whether or not you're a police officer. Uh, And to be in that situation when all that's going off, and I don't know whether whether any of those officers have seen some of the news footage of what had gone on in the roll Course of Justice, and then, you know, they knew they had to face something else. And I guess, like me, there was a, a genuine belief that this could end up in a public disorder. And some of those officers would have been on duty when the public disorder took place in 2011 so there would be in the back of their mind i've lived through this once you know am i going to have to live through this again and here's you know the bar commander saying to us let these people just tease us abuse us and be you know um, abusive towards us so it was a massive ask and i you know um, as as a as a senior leader i hold my i have massive respect for those officers you know and people say you're a disciplined service yeah of course we are but you still have people still have emotions have massive respects in terms of the level of control and 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 um, response to what was a real challenging difficult tense situation we
0: you, we've spoken a little bit about this, the the BBC's documentary, the uh, you know the Met policing London, which came out in um, twenty fifteen, which was uh, uh, you know the series one, which was focused heavily on the two thousand eleven public disorder and, and obviously the the inquest into marks Mark Duggan's shooting.
1: Behind the scenes with Britain's biggest police force. Get him! Yeah, that vehicle's not for firearms. Brilliant
0: pavements are absolutely chocker we've got a hostile crowd let's get out there you. mate you're under arrest of theft of these handbags well, we suspect that you have
1: robbed a female it's big boys games big boys sentences that is a bad individual taken off the streets at that the brand new series of the met policing london on bbc one
0: what was what's it like to have that extra layer of dynamic and accountability and this sort of camera crew following you around whilst you're engaging with community members on this on the on the steps of of Tottenham's police station um, having really quite challenging conversations like I look back on that and remember a chap coming up to you and questioning your very position there as to kind of why you'd been placed into Tottenham as the, or into Haringey as the chief superintendent because his view was it was because you were a black man not because you were good at your job and I felt a little bit disappointed because clearly you were incredibly good at your job and incredibly good at leading Teams of police officers through very difficult times. You know that's you know some some incredible moments in that documentary, but such an unusual dynamic to have to also manage whilst trying to deal with community issues.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and I and I, um, I and I say when I give you know talks now, and I, and I say at the time in the sense of um, always always prepare yourself to to receive a, a slap on the face metaphorically from you know. Um, a, an area where you don't expect it from an area where you might expect a um a a certain level of support and and understanding and and that that really that really surprised me and uh and disappointed me in a sense because i felt combination of things i i felt the criticism was genuine but i also felt it was probably playing a little bit to uh to the cameras, which i guess you know is part and parcel of you know how you how you tease police officers in, in challenging situations? Um, it was hurtful professionally um, because I you know I, I genuinely believe I was there being posted there because I had the ability to um, lead as a borough commander in terms of all the day to day business as usual stuff that borough commander needed to do. And I talked about some of the um, uh, uh, performance stats that we needed that I. Needed to lead my team to achieve and maintain in comparison to other boroughs, uh, and then on top of that, there was you know this really um, special different moment for for London and dealing with the with the inquest and following the shooting of Mark. So that was an added element, significantly added element that I had to lead and police and deal with. Uh, and then there were other things you know going on uh, in the borough. You know i talked about. Um, you know, after the inquest, a young man being shot, but there were, you know, there were there were assaults going on. There were other deaths, you know, murders going on in the borough. Um, there were policing challenges going on. So I had to deal with all those things. So I, I, I felt I was, I had the skill, the experience, the knowledge to be a good borough commander, but also the skill, knowledge and experience on top of that, to be able to deal with this particular different and in some way unique um, challenge that London was facing and, and, and Tottenham, Haringey in particular was facing. Uh, and I thought i would you know done a good job in terms of getting my officers to work together collectively uh, and be professional, which they were, but to continue to do so in the face of all the adversity. And I'd built a trust with the community. So to, to have a fellow black man come up to you in the middle of you know, what was a maelstrom is to say to you, you know, you're only there because you look good for the camera. Um And one one of the things that surprised me was, uh, because when the filming start, I get in at the beginning of the day and have a microphone, you know, pinned on me, and I just get on and, you know, do my normal day's work. And at the end of the day, the microphone would be taken off, but he's recording all the time. And one of the things that surprised me afterwards is the fact that, you know, I didn't swear at him and, Tell him to go and you know, find solace somewhere else um, because it, it was it was it was a slap in the face and I just thought why um, and I and I did think then if I'd have been a white officer you would not have come up and said that to me and the fact that you did do it and the fact that you're a fellow black man and did do it and the fact that you did it in the middle of really what was a really challenging situation both disappointed me and actually left me thinking. You know, you can never take anything for granted. You know, you've just got to be at the top of your game every single moment. And that's the best that you can do. And how people judge you, it's entirely is entirely down to them.
0: One thing I talk about a lot in my podcasts is throughout our careers, um, and your thirty five years is no different, is the support that we have and the love um from family because it is an incredibly difficult job there are so many moving parts to it and there's also the emotions that go with it and being able to go home and to debrief with loved ones is often a critical point in terms of allowing those stresses not to build up and to have a really strong support network base Um, do you want to just reflect on the on the support that you've had throughout that career because particularly during that period would have been incredibly stressful as you say you spent nights sleeping at the police station which is incredible sacrifices to be away from family whilst that's going on
1: yeah no absolutely um I, and, and that time in particular I mean you know when you when you join um or when I joined you know you were working I was working shifts uh and that made life really difficult in terms of you know um at the time the shift pattern was um was um a four-week shift pattern when you work seven nights seven early in the morning six in, in the morning till two in the afternoon and seven late which is two in the afternoon to ten in the evening. So, you know, that, and you had one weekend off in four. So, you know, you knew that your social life was compromised um before you started. So partner, wife, it started off then, but as you, you know, develop and progress and rise through the ranks, you um you you expect, you know, some of those um sacrifices to to ease. Um uh, but, you know, in in the latter part of my career um, you know in Bexley which is a long way to travel from uh, from Surrey to to, um, um, to to Bexley you know that meant longer time away from home uh, when you added the travel time and being at work and then in Haringey yeah completely different you know and, and I remember we sat and had a we the family sat and had a conversation about when it was offered the post and this is what it would mean um, even less time with the children who were young then, less time at home, uh, and uh, you know, spending the time at the police station um, was meant, you know, not being at home in the evenings on certain occasions. So there, there were many, many things that I missed out on, and the family missed out on, you know, school days, school events, um, family, you know, holidays. Uh, so those are the things that. And I'm glad you asked. It. Those are the things that are not often thought about. You know the sacrifices that family, you know, close friends sometimes make for you to be able to actually give your best as a, a, a in a career in the policing. Uh, so I'm really, really grateful for them. And 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 I knew it was a massive sacrifice, but it really brought it home to me when I sat down and um and, and watched the documentary with the family um and at the time i think my my son was was seventeen uh daughter was eighteen um you know going through those typical teenage years and uh, uh wanting to be independent and and having had experience with police officers which on one or two occasions wasn't particularly good my son and we sat there and we watched it and um And as we went through it towards the end and he and he he was sat on the sofa he looked at me and he said uh, wow well done dad you know i didn't realize that that's what you were doing and you just thought yeah you know um that's what i was doing which they didn't know about but they're still supportive there and everything else so it's um, you know, it's a really good point. It's a massive sacrifice that families make for us to be able to pursue a career in policing that um, doesn't get acknowledged as often as it ought to do.
0: No, I <clears throat> I totally agree with you. And um, it's something that I often reflect on significantly because families ride those challenges just as much as we do, but equally in the background. And often they, they bear the brunt of the stresses and the... And the absence of a loved one, because we're busy there looking out for other people rather than sometimes our own families, which is some sort of, of the greatest challenges. And I think it's um, they're the unsung heroes, as I describe them. Um, Absolutely. In, in two thousand and seventeen, you were awarded the Queen's Police Medal for distinguished police service. Again, another proud moment for you and your family. Looking back on you know nearly thirty five years of policing at that time.
1: Yeah, it was. Um, I'll have to admit, it was a uh, it was a surprise. I never. I never expected it. Um, and, and I remember when I was told about it and, uh, you know, came in when the um, honours list was published and someone was saying, oh, congratulations. I thought, what for? Have you not seen? I said, seen what? I said, oh, you've been awarded a um, Queen's Police Medal. Oh thought, wow. Um, yeah, so, I, you know, I, I, and I, I I didn't know, you know, um, where it came from. I did, did remember stupidly asking the commissioner and... Uh, you know, having a conversation, saying, oh, I'm not sure who's um, recommended me for this. And uh, it would be interesting to know. He said, you know, Vic, there's some things that you just leave alone. Um, so it was, you know, it was a, it was a huge, yeah, a huge privilege because, um, you know, it's, it's for it's for something, it's for being good at a profession that you've chosen to pursue. And I also remember another colleague from, uh, from the city phoning me up and saying, look, well-deserved you've got that for being a good cop and you haven't got it for rising through the ranks, um, which I thought was a massively encouraging compliment. Um, Yeah, so it it was a surprise and it was, you know, um, um, a real, you know, privilege um, uh, and an honour really to be be seen uh, and recognised for, um, you know, doing well at an occupation and a profession that i've chosen yeah i was i was over the moon and um, uh and, and in, in in a way it wasn't intended but in a way i think it was uh, probably the best way to been able to say to you know family parents um, um you know my dad was not alive to, to to see it but to be able to say to my mum uh, you know and wife and children thank you for all the all the support that we just said before you know all the support um, that you, you gave throughout the years when I was running around in uniform. Um, I think that's a I thought that was a good way to say thank you to them because it wasn't just for for me and my policing career, as we said before, it's for all the um, support in the background and all the commitment that people make to enable you to be able to be a, a police officer.
0: We can't round out or end or this conversation without talking about your love for the game of football, the importance it's played on your life with commonality with your colleagues, which we spoke about a little bit about off air. Uh, you know, you're a huge supporter of the Metropolitan Police football side. You've been heavily involved in it. Sports obviously played an important part in your life throughout your career. Um, you, you know, you want to just talk us through how that's kind of allowed you to be able to switch off and to... To do something which doesn't rely on you to think about the problems which face you in your professional life.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think if you were if you were talking to my wife at the moment, she'd probably say, "I don't switch off when I'm in sport. You know, when I'm playing, <laughs> I, I'm probably more more vocal than, than uh, in my profession. And when I'm watching, it's probably you know, I've got colleagues, and I want to sit next to them in uh, um, at Met games. I'm probably. I sometimes I think. You're in the directors section, you know. Vic, stop bloody screaming at you know <laughs> what the uh, referee's decision is. Uh, so, yeah. So I'll probably don't switch off. But yeah, no. Sport has been a has been a a huge influence, I think, in um, in enabling me to settle into into policing. So, uh, and, and, and I said when I when earlier on that when I decided to join the police, I applied to Surrey. Kent and the Met and Surrey responded really promptly and I've since realised that part of the reason for that was um, I played football at university, I uh, captained the team one year and in one year we won the University of London Cup um, which was a brilliant achievement although we, the university had done it before and um, it was a brilliant achievement to be able to do it um, and at the time there was, uh, it was at the time when the police paid for officers to go and get degrees um, while serving and there was an inspector from Surrey Police who was the secretary of Surrey Police Football Club It was at Royal Holloway College um, and, and, you know, and, he, and he spoke to um, students who played football as well in his history course and so I played football so when I applied I think there was then that certain commonality in the sense of he's a good student, he's a good footballer he could be a good cop. Do you know what? You know, and I think that that speeded up the uh, process for my application, and I got into Surrey. Surrey responded much quicker than either Kent or or, or Met, but because you know um, there was that knowledge already of me with somebody who's working in Surrey, and then when I joined, and I remember you know ten weeks at training school, and I come back on a Friday, I got back to uh, my posting in Guildford that. Uh, you know, about uh, five o'clock and um, get told that the borough commander would like to see you. It's only five minutes, you know, just want to have a chat to you, welcome you back and, um, you know, you can settle down and he he goes home. So I go to uh, the borough commander's office about quarter past five and I get in there and, you know, conversation, yeah, you've done really well at training school, good marks, you know. um, um, How was it? You settled, yeah, welcome to Guildford. um, And that was about 10 minutes and then he said, I understand you play football. Like, yes, I do. And we spend the next hour and ten minutes talking about football. <laughs> I, come out, I come out the barrack of commander's office. You know, uh, an hour and a half later, and I look back now. That must have sent a significant message, subconsciously, uh, intentionally, to the other staff. So here's a new. It's the first black person who's joined the force. Mm. He's come back from training school. On a Friday evening he's gone to see the borough commander who normally spends five minutes with people but they spent an hour and a half together. What's all that about? You know, he's either dropped himself in the khaki or there's something about him that means, you know, we you know we're not gonna we're not gonna mess around with him if if anybody thought of doing so. And then on top of that, started playing football, <clears throat> and it was a case of, you know, I I got told this afterwards, and people would ask, you know colleagues who, who worked in different stations around Surrey, come together, we'll play football together. Oh, who's that black guy who's just joined? Oh, Vic. Yeah, Vic's the football team, we play football together. Oh, and the conversation changes. So rather than who's that black guy who's joined Surrey Police, in the case of, oh, he's a footballer He's part of the football team, oh, he also happens to be black. And again, I think that provided protection that may not have been there, and that certainly changed the conversation about me that may not have been as positive as it was because there was that commonality. People were talking about me as member of the football team and the colour, although it was there, and there's no question it was there, but that became secondary. And I guess that probably added some protection for those people who may want to have been derogatory, now thinking, well, oh, hang on, it's part of the football team, it's part of... I know him, I get on with him, and if he gets on with him and plays football with him, let's have a different type of conversation. And that's moved all the way through, and over my um, time in the service, there's many occasions where the borough commander at the time in Guildford when I joined, moved to the Met, You know, worked as a commander, worked as a DHC in the Met, and there were many, many occasions when I phoned him up, would go and have a chat, career chat, career development, um, which I probably would not have had access to had I not had that relationship, that commonality to start off with. So that helped me through my career um, all the way through. And, you know, even when I, uh, just before retiring, I became part of the Met Police um, Directors, and that provided, again, contact with... Officers from different areas, albeit you don't have officers playing for the team now, but officers who were involved in running the team, and it kept me in contact with people in different areas of the Met that I didn't know, and it kept me with you know insight into the Met at the moment, um, in in a different way. So sport has been hugely influential, and um, and I think I think for me played a real significant part in my fitting in. Um, to policing, um, uh, both in Surrey and the City of London, where I played football as well in the City of London. Again, got accepted very, very quickly because of that you know, um, football connection with the guys that played football, who works in different departments, although it's a much smaller force, but then again, that commonality just gave you the acceptance um, from other officers who you probably didn't work with for a while or probably never got to work with. But, you know, there was that commonality there. Um, So it's hugely influential. And I I now think, you know, that as a principle, if policing services could find a way of actually focusing on the commonality that people from black, African, um, Asian, um, you know, minority background bring to policing, I think there's a real opportunity there to improve, you know, Retention, um, um, performance, reduce anxiety from people joining the police service. And I think you could actually find a way of actually increasing the retention, maybe increasing the um, um, application of uh, people wanting to join the police service.
0: 2017 was um, when you hung up your epaulets and policing came to, that chapter in policing came to an end. Were you were you ready for it to come to an end at that point? Were you sad to 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 leave? What were the emotions?
1: Uh, emotions were mixed, really. Um, I'd have liked to have gone on um, a bit longer, um, but you know the next stage was going on to the executive level, um, and I you know wasn't successful in getting through the um, the uh, assessment process to get to the executive level. Um, and look, I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, being a borough commander. Uh, and I think in policing is probably, you know, one of the most enjoyable ranks to work in because it, it gives you a certain level of autonomy, but working within a, a clear, you know, clear parameters of what you can do for the organisation. And it's hugely, hugely rewarding when it goes well. Um, and it's a massive learning experience when it doesn't go quite well. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to, Come out of the other side to say, yeah, you know, um, achieved some good things, got some good results, um, had some good experiences, made lots of friends, um, you know, and I've come out in one piece, and 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 so I really enjoyed that. Uh, and then at the time I retired, I thought, well, you know, I could, I could, you know, ask to go back to be a borough commander in another busy borough, but I'm not sure, you know, um, professionally I'd be learning that much, and certainly I wasn't. Prepare to put the family through another really challenging process of being away from stints of being away from home, not being there. Um, so I, you know, I, I thought it was just the right time. It was the right time to leave. Um, you know, and I guess you know if you're going to leave any any uh, work that you do in any profession, occupation, is probably leave it when you know you're at your peak. Um, and I think yeah, um, I could I could console myself. It's the right time to go, even though. You know, if the opportunity had been there, I'd have I'd have worked on a bit longer, but at a different level. But I'm I'm you know I'm hugely proud of what I achieved. I'm happy with the decision that I made, and I'm uh, you know I'm I'm happy with certainly happy with being retired. When I look at some of the things that policing have to face at the moment, I'm definitely happy. I'm retired.
0: We, although we walk away from policing, policing I think is very much in our DNA. We call it, you know, the, the the blue blood that runs through our veins. In terms of the years that we 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 give to the public and to the organisations in trying to create safer communities and to support people in the greatest time of need, and we often find ourselves end up doing more for policing outside of the job than we do when we were in it. And I'm just wondering outside of policing, what does, what's life look for, for Victor now? What are you, what are you doing to keep yourself busy? And, you know, are you still tackling the sort of challenges that police, fa- policing faces on the outside.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, interestingly enough, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm doing more different things now. Um, and, and probably working in, in a far greater area and probably working, um, uh, harder now than it than I was when I was a police officer, and I, and I say that because you know, t- towards the latter part of my career, and had them um, you know, people around me, whether it's staff officer or, or um, personal assistant, who organize meetings and everything else. All I needed to do was turn up and get to it and um, do what I needed to do, but now I'm having to organize it myself, and it um, it's not so organized. Um, so, I mean, I do a number of things now, I've done a number of um, charity work, so I'm part of um, trustees of a, a, a different number of charities so and I've, I've been a charity in NACRO, working with NACRO um, charity of smaller um, uh, charitable charities in, in London so there's one in um, Harringay where I'm a charity uh, community charity doing lots of work and trying to uh, develop and create a community hub in um, uh, it's called the Selby Centre um, I'm a you know, chair of a, charity in, a, in a um, charity in Hampshire that looks after the, uh, disabled young people doing some incredibly fantastic work and I feel really privileged and honoured to be able to contribute to the work that they're doing, um, which is great. Uh, I've done a number of, um, and I still do a number of uh, um, academic work, so lectured at a number of universities um, and lectured on the policing degree a number of universities and um, occasionally do some of that as a visiting lecturer in in uh, uh, a number of universities. I've worked with five universities since retiring. Uh, I'm an external examiner. That's uh, so another university, but an external examiner for the police uh, degree programme. So in that way, I'm still involved in policing, you know, albeit the education of um, of, um new recruits to the police and sometimes junior recruits in the police and I still get to hear and discuss, you know, uh directly with people who are involved directly with policing. Um and the other thing I'm 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 fortunate to be involved in, I'm still asked to uh to comment, you know, um on the media about some of the policing activities, some of the challenges that police face at the moment. Um, which is an honor to do and, and when I do those I always always try to be positive, constructive and um, you know because I understand how difficult and challenging policing is um, and I understand that you know it' it has become more challenging certainly in the last since I retired five years ago and it's, um, uh, and part of that challenge I think is that you know when I joined 40 years ago the police organization could control, to a to a fair degree, the information that people had about policing, you know, what you knew about what the police did, how they did it, and the results that they achieved, now I think a significant amount of that control is gone. You know, research into policing is much broader, uh, access into policing is much wider. You know, whether it's through social media, whether it's through people taking more interest, whether it's people actually observing policing on the street. So the police have far less control of managing the information that goes out about what it does as an organisation, as an institution, and that makes it even more difficult for police to control their brand. And for me it means that policing needs to be aware of that and actually understand that people have more information about the organisation, the institution, its people, than maybe in some cases the police has itself. Um, and, and that helps me in terms of, you know, um, the my involvement in policing at the moment, some of the public comments and statements that I make. Um, so although I've been retired from police five years, I still have a, a passion in understanding and, and trying to contribute in its development and its progression and its um, understanding um, with people who are not police officers with the community. Um and that still gives me pleasure and as, and as long as i'm able to do that in a productive and positive way i'll continue well in 2005 you were awarded
0: a phd in criminology at the london school of economics and political science so dr victor elisa recipient of the queen's police medal the last just over two hours of conversation just walking through your incredible career in British policing the support and the lives that you have no doubt touched across a number of different counties across the city of London and importantly the Metropolitan Police and the and the boroughs of Bexley Haringey Tottenham have been phenomenal so on behalf of my team and I thank you ever so much to you and your family for your public service for your commitment to supporting others in real difficult times of need. You've certainly been an inspiration in my career, albeit from 12,000 miles away, to watch you lead groups of officers into, in very challenging communities going through real significant problems has been inspirational and, and, and incredible to watch. So thank you ever so much for giving up your time this morning on Saturday morning to, to sit down and explore these, or explore your career with me. It's been an honour to hear your story.
1: Oh, they, no, thank you. It's been a real privilege to be to be invited and I've, um, I've listened to um, you know, other guests that have been on here and um, yeah, I feel honoured to be actually share the same space with them. Um, so you know, a massive, massive thank you.
0: Absolute pleasure and we wish you all the best with all your future outside policing endeavours.
1: Thank you very much and uh, looking forward to catching up in the future.
0: Protect and Serve is a mash Pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynne Stanley.
1: Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence.